The reading this morning is from the book of Revelation, chapter 6. And I really wish I had the voice of James Earl Jones to read this, but... Revelation, chapter 6. I watched as the Lamb opened the first of the seven seals. Then I heard one of the four living creatures say in a voice like thunder, Come. I looked, and there before me was a white horse. Its rider held a bow, and it was given a crown, and he was given a crown, and he rode out as a conqueror bent on conquest. When the Lamb opened the second seal, I heard the second living creature say, Come. Then another voice came out, a fiery red one. Its rider was given power to take peace from the earth and to make people kill each other. To him was given a large sword. When the Lamb opened the third seal, I heard the third living creature say, Come. I looked, and there before me was a black horse. Its rider was holding a pair of scales in his hand. Then I heard what sounded like a voice among the four living creatures saying, Two pounds of wheat for a day's wages, and six pounds of barley for a day's wages, and do not damage the oil and the wine. When the Lamb opened the fourth seal, I heard the voice of the fourth living creature say, Come. And I looked, and there before me was a pale horse. Its rider was named Death, and Hades was following close behind him. They were given power over a fourth of the earth to kill by sword, famine, and plague, and by the wild beasts of the earth. And when he opened the fifth seal, I saw under the altar the souls of those who had been slain because of the word of God and the testimony they had maintained. They called out in a loud voice, How long, Sovereign Lord, holy and true, until you judge the inhabitants of the earth and avenge our blood? Then each of them was given a white robe, and they were told to wait a little longer, until the full number of their fellow servants, their brothers and sisters, were killed just as they had been. I watched as he opened the sixth seal, and there was a great earthquake. The sun turned black like sackcloth, made of goat hair. The whole moon turned blood red, and the stars in the sky fell to earth as figs drop when a fig tree was shaken by a strong wind. The heavens receded like a scroll being rolled up, and every mountain and island was removed from its place. Then the kings of the earth, the princes, the generals, the rich, the mighty, and everyone else, both slave and free, hid in caves and among the rocks of the mountains. They called out to the mountains and the rocks, Fall on us and hide us from the face of him who sits on the throne and from the wrath of the Lamb. For the great day of the wrath has come, and who can withstand it? This is the word of the Lord. You may be seated. That is a, a serious passage, isn't it? I mean, it's downright scary. Because in that passage, and I was looking forward to getting to this point in the sermon series, we're in the middle of some intense symbolism. Some intense symbolism. So the question becomes, what is the symbolism about? Uh, first, what the symbols are, you know, what the symbols were described as. But here's a picture um, of the symbols that were described at the beginning 
of this chapter. The horsemen of the apocalypse. There are four of them there. White, blood red, black. They symbolize something. Now you can imagine that there's plenty of speculation concerning their symbol. I want to jump right into those four horses and four horsemen and uh, wonder with you about what they symbolize. So let's begin with horse number one with its rider. Horse number one is white. Its rider is clothed in white. Its rider has a crown on its head. And you'll notice in its left hand, the rider has a bow with which he conquers. Who is the rider? Some people suggest it's a symbol of Jesus Christ. I'll be honest with you about what I think. I don't think that's it. It doesn't seem like Jesus Christ is the one who's leading the charge in terms of this massive apocalypse before the end of the age. Although later, of course, we see Jesus Christ being the judge. I could go into the details about why I don't think that's compelling as a symbol, but instead of doing that, Actually, Adam and I have talked about doing a little video thing after every sermon. He, he called it on the cutting room floor, the kind of stuff I would have said if I'd have had time. I'm not going to go into why. I'll just tell you I don't think it's an image of Jesus Christ. What I think it's an image of is any number of historical conquerors, any number of nations that have conquered the world. Just one clue. Some people look at Revelation chapter 19 and see Jesus as the white rider on the horse, and they refer to this as the symbol matching that in Revelation 19. There's a curiosity there. In Revelation 19, the word for crown is royal diadem. The word for crown in this passage is simply a crown a conqueror's crown. That's one of the reasons I think we're better off to see this as any number of historical conquests throughout the history of the world, whether Rome or nations that follow. Either way, the conquest is violent. The conquest is triumphant. The conquest is illustrated with rider, bow, and arrow. The second horse is the red horse in the picture that I just showed you. That rider is permitted, according to the book of Revelation, that red horse, to take peace away from people. In other words, to replace peace with conflict. Instead of peace among people, the red rider introduces violence. It seems like an image of war. It seems like an image of mass murder and individual hatred. As a matter of fact, we know, and I don't mean this in a 
negative way against the military. I did not have the privilege of serving in the military, but I would have been honored to do so. But war is hell, my friends. The greatest of generals will tell you that. War is hell. It's the last resort, and it shouldn't happen. What is true about war is that most of the time, war is motivated by greed. Greed of nations who want other nations' resources and land and water and food. And the blight on human history through war is dramatic. It's extremely severe. And the blight on human history from the lack of peace and murder is astronomical. We could talk about any number of historical episodes that all of us remember from history. Most of us, at least in this audience, didn't live through World War II or the Korean War. But some of us lived through a war in Sarajevo, Bosnia, Yugoslavia, Herzegovina. I remember that war, not because I was there, but because of the television images. Among other things, war destroys what is best in humanity, peace and love. And on May 18, 1993, two people who were in love and on the opposite sides of that particular civil war decided to make their escape from the catastrophe that was in front of them. They ran as fast as they could through a what you might call neutralized zone or a no-man's land to get out. And as they ran, a sniper struck down and killed the young man. The young woman fell to his side, overwhelmed with grief, and wrapped her arms around him and kissed and hugged him while he lay dying. And moments later, another sniper took her life. And there they were on the ground in a death-slash-love embrace. For those of you who don't remember this incident, it was on the national news day after day. Not just the initial murder, but day after day because the sides would not resolve and come into a truce so the bodies could be removed. The United Nations negotiated a ceasefire so they could go in and take those two people out of the conflict dead. The man that was famous for reporting this incident was a Reuters News Agency journalist, a war correspondent. His name was Kirk Short. He dubbed them Romeo and Juliet. As a war correspondent, he had been in harm's way many times. And he said after that incident, if and when I die, I wish to be buried next to them. Seven years later in Sierra Leone, 
as a war correspondent, he died. His parents granted him his request by spreading some of his ashes next to their graves. War is hell. And it seems to me this red horse represents it in the history of humanity. The third horse in that picture was black. I want to show the picture again of the third horse. It's to the right of the white horse. See in the horseman's hands, there's scales. An odd thing, but they have meaning. The scales are weighing things that are very important for survival. And the phrase that comes out of that image is this. A quarter of wheat for a day's pay. Three quarters of barley, cheaper than regular wheat, for a day's pay. But whatever you do, don't damage the olive oil and the wine. Weighing what's most important. I looked at that image and looked at it through the lens of many authors this week. And it's pretty clear that the image at least suggests this. Famine disproportionately affects the poor. Famine is frequently not so complete that it wipes out a civilization. As a matter of fact, it is said that when the Romans invaded other nations and took them captive, they would do all kinds of devastation, but they would leave the olive trees alone and the grapevines alone because they were kind of the base for rebuilding. Burn everything else up, but don't make it complete. Now my reference to famine and poor, it also could be implied from this image that those who are the poorest are begging and giving a full day's wage just for a little bit of wheat. And those who are wealthy, we know this to be true historically, are living a lavish lifestyle right before the poor. I can't help uh, but think of the French Revolution and King Louis the Fourteenth, who had all kinds of delicacies behind the palace gates, while in the streets the people were starving to death. I pause here because I'm going to say something that could offend many people. It is also true that today the wealthiest have everything they need and the poor have little. Billionaires legally evade taxes and the poorest of the poor take up the bill. 
It might be an image something like that. A famine is horrible, but some people always come out on top. The fourth horse is a pale green horse, and the name of that rider is Death and Hades. The death from this horse comes by the sword, whether murder or warfare. It comes by famine, it comes by pestilence, and it comes from wild animals. You can't help but think of the martyrs who died in the face of vicious animals. Death is not just here, but everywhere known as the ultimate enemy. Nobody can avoid it. Everyone must pass through the gates of death, and some through the gates of hell. That, apparently, is what the fourth rider on this pale green horse represents. Now, in chapters 6 and 7, there are six seals. The seventh is not opened until chapter 8. The first four are opened, and out of those seals come these riders, four horsemen. But the fifth and the sixth seal have no horsemen in them. The fifth seal, which is opened up, gives us a picture. It's a picture of saints, the martyrs, underneath the altar, those who have died for their faith. Underneath an altar that in the Old Testament was used for blood sacrifices, symbolic there. Underneath that altar, the souls of the martyrs cry out to God, how long? How long, O Lord? Is this going to go on? Oh, by the way, let me remind you that the first four rider plagues were allowed to happen. By whom? God. Because God is sovereign and he allows evil. How long, O Lord, is it going to last before our blood is avenged? Now, there's two things going on there. Number one, they're asking for relief. They're saying, how much longer must we endure this? But there's something going on. The how much longer shall we endure this is an implication that it will come to an end. The cry, sovereign Lord, is an implication that somebody's in charge of this nasty mess. It's an implication that the martyrs realize they did not die in vain, that they realize there's an end to the story, and the end to the story is going to make sense of all the chaos. That's why the martyrs say what they say. How much longer, Lord? How much longer? The sixth seal um, is opened, and in it you see a giant earthquake. The sun is blackened and the moon turns to blood. And the kings of the earth, those who are rich and powerful, are no longer rich and powerful in the face of the wrath of the Lamb, along with the poor and everyone else who is not in line with the wrath of the Lamb, who has not made themselves one with Jesus Christ, 
they scream out, let the rocks fall on us. That would be better than having to look into the face of the Lamb and His wrath. We have an image of Jesus from the New Testament, the Gospels primarily, as a meek, sacrificial lamb. And he is. And we are asked to follow in this life that meek, sacrificial lamb. But here we have a lamb slain before the foundation of the earth who now comes to judge wickedness. There's no meekness. There's wrath. And it's coming. Following the sixth plague, or the sixth seal, you will notice, if you've been carefully looking at it, something of good news. There's a reference to 144,000 people who will be spared, saved. There's all kinds of speculation that goes into who the 144,000 are, referred to as the tribes of Israel. I think it is a mistake for us to think of the term 144,000 in literal meaning terms, right? I've said that before. Numbers in the book of Revelation are figurative. What is interesting, I'm no mathematician, so probably somebody will challenge me after this, but based on good authority, I understand, according to scholars, that the number 144,000 is the multiplication of 12 tribes and the cube of 10, which is the number of completion. Putting that mathematical equation aside, I want you to notice the way it unfolds. It begins with 144,000 people who are spared and then moves just very rapidly, linguistically, to a large group of people that could not be numbered. So here's my suggestion. My suggestion is that there's symbolism going on here that has nothing to do with the exact number. Symbolism that is going on here is poetic, not unlike the Psalms. The Psalms do it over and over again. They state one thing and reiterate it another way, saying essentially the same thing. That's poetry. So, for instance, you remember this psalm. Oh, magnify the Lord with me. Let us exalt his name together. Do you see the repetitive nature of the language? Oh, magnify the Lord with me. Exalt his name together. Actually, there are three rhymed meanings in that one little portion of the psalm. Magnify and exalt, said two different ways. Lord, his name, said two different ways. Me and together to worship, said two different ways. In other words, in the Psalms, and I do believe in the book of Revelation, and in much of apocalyptic literature, you have this kind of poetic cadence. 144,000 and more than could be numbered are added to that list. It seems that the description is of a large throng of people, Jews and Gentiles, who are saved by Christ. And they can't even be numbered because of his grace. 
There's really a threefold message here in this section of chapter 6 and 7. There's a warning. Tribulation is coming. There is an assurance. The faithful will endure and will be victorious. And there's a promise of blessedness. White robes indicating purity and victory. So what about issues and applications from this wild piece of literature? There could be many, but let me cut to what I believe to be the point. For those of you who are fascinated by the distinction in eschatological literature, and you're looking for a description of a historicist view or a preterist view or a futurist view, once again, you will be gravely disappointed. Because to reiterate what I said a couple of times in other sermons, in my opinion, the primary purpose of prophecy is not prediction. The primary purpose of property of prophecy is proclamation. A deep message behind the signs. If that is true, what is the primary message? The primary message here is obvious and important. It tells us to believe in the sovereignty of God, that he's in charge of all history, including enveloping evil itself. And it challenges us to live in light of that belief, to walk every day as a disciple of Jesus Christ, admitting and accepting that God is in control (coughs) and writing the story. I want to borrow some of the admonition of Jesus who on several different occasions spoke to the disciples about future events, predictions, and prophecies. The end. And basically, I'll summarize it this way. You know what he said? Hey, fellas, don't worry about timing and dates. I just want you to be busy about the kingdom of God until I come. How are you busy about the kingdom of God until Christ come? You buy into this particular approach to history. You believe it, and you act upon it. The history of the world is full of evil and conflict. We know that. These horses represent what we all know well. War, conquering nations, and pestilence, and famine and death. A common criticism of the Christian faith is, if God is really good, why does he allow all this to happen? As one theologian, Annie Dillard, once said, the primary theological question I hear the most is, what in the Sam Hill is going on around here? (laughs) Right? What in the world? Well, what's going on here? is that God is writing a story. 
And if we accept that story, it could mean multiple things. It could mean we accept that story and we just hang on tenaciously to the end and it all burns up and goes away and we get victorious. Or it could be something different. Somewhere along the way, we could give up on goodness altogether. Say history just repeats itself. War after war, murder after murder, hatred after hatred. Or perhaps we could use our faith to periodically reach a higher plane where the air is pure and everything's right and everything's glorious just long enough that we can come back to the real world and live in it again. I'd like to suggest that none of those is the biblical answer. The biblical answer about evil is this. The Bible does not explain why evil exists. It simply assumes that it does from the very beginning. Michael Wilcock, a theologian who's an expert in the book of Revelation, put it this way, we do not need Christ to tell us that the world is full of trouble. But we do need his explanation of history if its troubles are not to be meaningless. If its troubles are not to be meaningless. Eugene Peterson puts it this way, the Bible does not provide an explanation of evil. Rather, it defines evil in context. All evil takes place in a historical arena. Get this. All evil takes place in a historical arena bounded by Christ and prayer. Evil is not so much explained. It's surrounded. Surrounded with words like these of Jesus. Greater is he that is in you than he that is in the world. My friends, this is not unrealistic optimism, nor is it put your head in the sand. If you embrace this understanding, it's a call to action. It's a call to work alongside God right in the face of evil, to bring down the kingdom of God tomorrow where you live and where you act and where you work. Martin Luther King was famous for a lot of things, but one of them was a phrase that he used, and it had been repeated over and over again. Honestly, I used to look at the phrase and think, oh, that's naive. But having studied more, I, I think I get it. Here was this phrase. The arc of the universe bends towards justice. You might be thinking the same thing I once was thinking. Are you kidding me? It doesn't seem like it. Does it inevitably bend towards justice? 
The only way you can embrace that statement is to have a Christian perspective on evil. The reason the arc of the universe potentially bends towards justice is because the arc of the universe bends towards Jesus Christ. The arc of the universe bends towards resurrection. The arc of the universe does bend towards justice. It can't help but bend towards justice because God is sovereign and he's writing history. As people of God, we are uniquely equipped to embrace this. Not always to understand it, but to embrace it. I read Eugene Peterson again out of a book called Reverse Thunder, an account of the book of Revelation. He says, no other community of people has insisted so consistently through the centuries, on calling evil by its right name. No other community but the Christian community. No other community has so mercilessly exposed its rationalizations. Not just a mistake, but sin. Nor so courageously confessed its own complicity. I am the one who's responsible. It's the sin within me. We admit exceptions. The faith community knows more about what is wrong with the world than any other. And it is at the same time. This is so beautiful. It knows more than any other community what is wrong with the world. And at the same time, it is less cynical or despairing about it because of the resurrection of Jesus Christ. That's the reason. It all goes back to the resurrection. I tell a quick story to conclude it that again Eugene Peterson told. He said he was teaching on this subject to a small group. And he said there was a woman in the audience who just had this aha look on her face. And finally she said, I I think I get it. I think I understand. Can I share my story? He said, sure, of course, share your story. This woman had all kinds of trauma in her life, all kinds of bitterness and rage because of what had happened to her, all kinds of hurt feelings. She said, I went to a counselor, and the counselor told her, "Um, how about if we take each one of those things separately as individual items, the wrongs, the offenses, the injuries, just every one of them separately, one at a time, and analyze them. (coughs) And then he suggested that she take all those incidents and place them in a big pile. She said, as I went through each of those incidents, I began to realize that none of them was greater or less than the other. They were, in effect, all the same. But when I piled them up, they became huge. 
Then she said she began to realize that in her life, the good things had been obscured by the great lump of piled up wrongs. Relationships that were delightful, songs that were ravishing, sights that were heart-stopping. She began to experience the wonder of her own body and how much it was working well. She began to trust the integrity of her own feelings and how valuable they were. She began to realize the preciousness of other lives and ways she could appreciate. Later, she came to know God and the entire world that she now recognized in Revelation 7 came into focus for her. None of the evil was abolished, but it was all in a defined perspective. The nameless evils had names. The numberless wrongs were numbered. She was hardly aware of the point at which the proportions shifted, but now it was the good that seemed endless and the glories that were beyond counting. Nothing in her life had changed. Everything in her life had changed. She wondered if something similar might not have happened under the influence of St. John's guiding imagination. I I think when we let St. John in the book of Revelation guide our imagination, that could happen. We're going to end with a song today. It's a mighty fortress is our God. We sing it because it kind of reiterates what we've been talking about. One of the lines I love the most is this. The prince of darkness grim, we tremble not for him. His rage we can endure, for lo, his doom is sure. One little word shall fell him. The word of Christ. Let us pray. Lord, we thank you for the harsh reality of life that is painted in the book of Revelation. It's not a Pollyanna version of the world. It's a real version. War exists. Hate exists. Greed exists. Pride exists. Murder exists. Despair exists. But Lord, you've given us enough reason not to despair. You've called us in every day and in every way to bring the kingdom of God to earth. You've given us a mission. And you've promised that eternal life will triumph over all. Not just triumph in our individual lives, but the eternal life of Jesus Christ's resurrection will triumph over history and make sense of the mess and recreate the very glory of God. Help us to be faithful, Lord, 
as we wait for that day. In the name of Christ, our Lord, we pray. Amen.